And I want you to imagine with me, may be difficult, but imagine that right in the middle of a wonderful sermon about eternal life, forgiveness, and the Holy Spirit, your mind begins to wander. I know you're going to have to really work at this, you know, picture, but a young, handsome, athletic preacher is up preaching his heart out, and he's talking about critical issues, the Holy Spirit, eternal things, and somehow in the middle of this great passionate sermon, your mind begins to wander away. You're, I mean, you're hearing, but you, you've, you've long stopped listening to what is being said. In fact, you're, you're so anxious that you just can't wait until the sermon's over to ask the pastor a question. So right in the middle of the sermon, you stand up and say, Oh, but this is what's on my mind, Pastor. Could you, could you answer this question for me? Right in the middle. And it's about your finances. Right in the middle of this sermon about eternal treasures, your, your mind is so consumed about your finances that you can't really listen anymore. And you can't even wait until the meet and greet at the back. You've got to have the answer to your question right now. Well, that's exactly what's happening in Luke chapter 12. Look, look back with me to verse 8. Jesus is preaching. He's come to a, a city. He's the guest pastor, so to speak. Imagine that. Jesus shows up at your church and, hey, we have a guest pastor this morning. It just happens to be Jesus. And this is what he says. I, I'm telling you this. I'm preaching to you this. Everyone who acknowledges me before men... The Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. I mean, that's a, I'd like to unpack that verse right there. But he goes on and then he says, Now, if anyone de denies me before men, he will be denied before the angels of God. Everyone who speaks a word against me, the Son of Man, will be forgiven. But if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you're not going to be forgiven. And you, those of you who are believers, if they bring you before synagogues or rulers or authorities, don't be anxious. Don't, don't worry about how you're going to defend yourself. The, the Holy Spirit will give you what to say. I mean, that's a powerful, powerful message but yet this guy's in the audience and he's just thinking about his financial future. Someone in the crowd, a man, he's worried about his inheritance. I just don't think my brother's going to divide it up the right way and I'm not sure I'm going to end up with enough according to my calculations. I, I've got my, you've seen the commercial for ING, I've got my number. See the guys carrying around the big orange number? That's the number they need to retire on. And I've got my number and I'm not sure that my brother's going to split it in a way that my number's going to satisfy me for the rest of my life. Can, can you do something about that, Jesus? Right in the middle of a sermon. Now, as a pastor, I'm very curious now of how Jesus is going to handle this interruption. What's he going to say to this guy? He's interrupted is this great passage on eternal things and now... This man wants to know about his finances. And so Jesus is a great pastor. 
and he tells this man a story. And maybe because this man mind, this man's mind wanders, he needs to tell him a story. Because, you know, a good story you can always be engaged in. And so he says, well, this guy's got a weak mind, I'll just tell him a story. And the story unfolds in three parts. A farmer has a problem. Secondly, the farmer determines a course of action to solve his problem. And then finally, Jesus gives an evaluation of the farmer farmer's solution, and he ends up calling him a fool. So that's how we're going to look at this story this morning. The, this farmer comes, he has a problem. He figures out, well, I've got to have a solution to this problem, and he, he creates a solution. And then Jesus comes in and steps in and says, well, this is my evaluation, not just of your problem, but of how you've dealt with your problem, and I think you're a fool. So let's look at the problem, verse 16 and verse 17. He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? The farmer had a bumper crop. The businessman had a good year. The real estate investor got into the market at just the right time. And you have a problem. And that problem is, you have too much. Some of you are thinking, Oh, if I could have a problem like that. That's a problem? Hey, I'll show you a problem. Come and look at my checkbook. That's a problem. But this isn't a problem. I mean, having too much? How is it possible that that's really a problem? And I would say if that's your thought process, then you have a bad eye. We talked about this several weeks ago in Matthew chapter 6, that Jesus says, uh, if your eye is good, the way you look at your resources, the way you look at your money and possession, if it's good, then your whole life is good. But if this one little area, this one little eye is bad, it makes the rest of your life dark. And so if you think that too much is not a problem or it wouldn't be a problem for you, then you have a bad eye. You have a divided eye. Listen to the wisest and wealthiest man ever to be on the planet, Solomon. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. The greatest evangelist in the world, the Apostle Paul, some people eager for money have wandered from their faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And Jesus in Matthew 19, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So we have biblical wisdom, but we don't need to just take that, which certainly would be enough. We can look at our own country. John D. Rockefeller said this, I've made millions, but they brought me no happiness. Vanderbilt, the care of $20 million is enough to kill anyone. Henry Ford, I was happier when I was doing a mechanic's job. 
Randy Alcorn wrote a book called The Treasure Principle, and there are probably four or five copies out on the information table if you'd like to take one home. It's a great book about how you see your finances. And you've seen these charts where uh, your life, your longevity of your life and the happiness of your life, and you say, well, do you exercise or do you smoke? Or, you know, you have all these little categories you check off and you add them up. One of the categories is it says, if you make, do you make more than $50,000 a year? If yes, subtract two years from your life. You see, these people in the Bible, these people in the world are, are telling us something. That when you have a lot, then it's quite a burden. Yet somehow, we think to ourselves, yeah, but I mean, I'm smarter than most people. I mean, you've heard the story, the guy wins the lottery and, you know, in five years he doesn't have any money left and you think, God, I just love that opportunity. And why? Because I'm just I'm smarter than most of those people. I mean, I can, I can make this happen. It, it won't be a problem for me. It really wouldn't be a burden or, boy, I sure would be willing to carry that burden. And verse 15, Jesus says, be on your guard. Literally, he say. He's saying, stare at this. You, you cannot take your eyes off this. It's like a snake in your bedroom. You would never say, well, okay, I see it. Let me go downstairs and get something, see if I can catch it. No, because when you come back, it might not be there. You'd never be able to get to sleep in your room again. You, you would always be staring at it. You would always be paying attention to it because you know it could come back and bite you. So, so be on your guard. <coughs> Stare at this. Don't, don't take your eyes off of it, Jesus says. And I, and I think about the, the folks here are in high school or college. And, and I want to I help you see that it's so easy for your goals and your career and your retirement and your home and your clothing and your travel and your car somehow becomes a measure of your success. Those things define who you are and what your value is. And Jesus is clearly telling us here, life, verse 15, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. That's, that's not how you're measuring your life in this world. This is the way the world does it. But don't measure your life that way. It's, it's not going to be measured that way. And so as I look at my college friends or I look at my high school friends, that's not the measure. I know you're going to get that message over and over and over again because you're going to drive up to somebody and you're going to be driving that 1993 Honda Accord that I'm driving right now. And you're going to come to that intersection and you're going to look around and say, I would rather have any other car in this intersection than the one I'm currently driving. Because the window doesn't roll up anymore. If it's raining, it drips down. The car's a little sour. Radio doesn't work. I mean, you're going to have all those feelings and you're going to feel them that way with what you're dressed or, or how you look or when you invite somebody to your home. It's going to happen over and over and over again. And you must have this truth in your brain. My life does, is not, me I'm not measuring my life on this scale. 
Other people might, but I'm not using this scale. I'm using a different scale. And if I could tell you parents, your life is not measured on the success of your children in this scale. It is so difficult as a father of a college student when somebody says, hey, what's your son majoring in? There's a tension. I feel it in myself. Got to have a good major. Got to have something that seems like there's a big future. There, there's, there's sort of a, a good line to, to walk down. You're going to be somebody. You're going to make something of yourself. You feel that tension. I cannot tell you in my time with ministry with high school students how many high school students really wanted to serve the Lord. They got so excited about their relationship with Christ and they, they come home and tell their parents about it and they'd want to go on the Young Life staff or they want to go into seminary, they want to go into the ministry some way and their parents would say, hey, there's just no future in that. I mean, what about your retirement? How are you going to live on that kind of salary? And so many dreams get crushed by parents because they're living on that scale. And they're demanding that their kids live on that scale. Because they're getting their value on what their kids end up doing. And Jesus couldn't be any more forceful here. That's, we're not about resumes and titles if you're following after me. You see, the man has a problem. And his problem is that he has too much. And it's a much bigger problem than he can see. He doesn't think it's a problem actually at all. And in the end, he's going to be called a fool. Well, here's the second part. The farmer determines a course of action. Let's just look at this. Verse 17. You might just circle this. He thinks to himself, or he thinks by himself. First big problem, which we'll address in a few minutes. Verse 17 and 18. He draws up a plan, which leads to early retirement. Third, verse 19, he tells a soul a lie. The, the voice you listen to more than any other voice is the voice in your head. You're talking to yourself right now. You're having a conversation while you're trying to listen to this conversation. You might be having two or three conversations in your head. But you're listening to this voice in your head over and over and over again. And this man, he tells himself, he says, soul... Now you can eat, drink, and be merry. You've got it all. And he tells himself a lie, and he believes it. And I wonder how many of us really believe that same lie. If I could just have everything I want, then I could relax, I could eat, I could drink, and I could be married. I've reached the American dream. If you tell yourself, that's, that's telling yourself a lie. Now let's just look at the last part when I was spend most of my time on Jesus' evaluation of the farmer, which is, starts in verse 20. God says to the man, fool. The, the, the preacher that has no money calls the man who has fulfilled the American dream a fool. 
Think about that. The homeless man walks into the church in America and says, <laughs> You fools. Yet you have it all. You have more than anybody could have ever imagined a hundred years ago. But you still don't think you have enough. And that's what Jesus does. But, but I want you to notice he doesn't call the man a fool because he's wealthy. Abraham was wealthy. King David was wealthy. Solomon was wealthy. He doesn't call the man a fool because of his hard work and he's gained a lot of money. I mean, you look at the man and it appears as if he's been a hard worker. Proverbs fourteen twenty three: All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. So he doesn't call the man a fool because he's wealthy. He doesn't call the man a fool because he's a hard worker and he's gained wealth from that. He calls the man a fool because of the way he solves his problems. And let's look at the way he does that. First of all, he, he has an absolute failure to recognize his dependence on God. If you notice in the parable, how many times do you see I and my used? The, the man is living like an owner, not a manager. I own all this stuff that I've been given. And so now I get to do with, with it what I want. So he's got a totally different view than God has. God says, no, I've given you something and you get to be a steward of that something. But the man thinks of himself as an owner. Several different places in the Bible we can see the same thing when when. God brings Adam and Eve into this new land, the Garden of Eden. He places one special tree they were forbidden to eat. It's, it's a way to remind Adam and Eve, you're, you're not in absolute control. I mean, I'm, I'm giving this to you and I'm telling you, you're supposed to manage all of this, but... But I'm really the, the ultimate owner of it. And I'm going to place a tree over here. And I'm just going to tell you, you can't have any fruit of this tree. And one of the main reasons is I just don't want you to think you're the owner. You didn't create anything. You're created. But in Genesis 3, we see the same self-centeredness of the farmer in Luke 12 play out in Genesis 3. Eve saw that the tree was good. Notice that she saw it. Her eye went black. It was pleasant. It, it, it made the rest of her world dark. And she didn't just forget about God. She knew God was still around, but she wanted to be an owner, not a manager. And so did Adam. In the book of Joshua... Joshua is leading the people of God into a new land again. We don't have just Adam and Eve going into the new garden. We have Joshua crossing the Jordan and he's going into a new land. And the very first city that they're going to do battle against is against Jericho. And God says to Joshua, you're going into this new land and it's a land flowing with milk and honey. There's houses that you didn't build. There's fields that you didn't plow. There's food that you're going to eat that you didn't plant. It's going to be a great land. But this first city, just one city, when you go in and take that city, I want you to leave it all behind. I don't want you to take anything with you. Just a reminder. 
Just one city out of all these cities. Just one. I want you to just leave it and go away. I don't want you to take anything out of the city because I want you to remember you're not an owner. You're a manager. <coughs> but one guy didn't get the message, Achan. He saw things and he wanted them. He didn't forget about God. He just really wanted to be an owner. Not a manager. And so my concern for me, my concern for you is that even after all these warnings, after Solomon and after Paul and after Jesus, even after Adam and Eve and after Joshua, that, that somehow you would think in your mind, I can do it. I can be the first guy. I can be the first woman that, that can master this. And you can't. If you whisper that to yourself, you're telling your soul a lie. God says you can't serve both God and money. Both of them lead to mastery. And you're going to hate one and love the other, or love one and hate the other. There's no third option unless you're a fool. The second thing we see here is the man's failure to recognize his connection and responsibility to other people. Dr. Martin Luther King delivered a sermon on this text, and his title was, Jesus Calls a Man a Fool, which is a great title. And Dr. King says, this man was a fool because he said, I and my so much that he lost the capacity to say we and our. Randy Alcorn, again from the Treasurer Principle, the man was a fool because he made the assumption that his abundance was meant for greater living, not for greater giving. The man was a fool because he had an abundance and he thought that abundance meant it meant greater living for him, not greater giving. Jesus could have looked at the man and said, Well, you failed the first and the second greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And the second one is just like it. The second one is the concrete example of whether the first one's working out in your life. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you're not loving your neighbor as yourself, you're not doing the first one. The man never stops to consider how his abundance might be used to help others, and so he's called a fool. And finally, he has a failure in his reasoning, and I ask you to look at verse 17 and just circle that. He thought to himself. This is a problem in many areas in our life, not just with finances. If you're a middle school, high school student, you do something that's wrong. I know this is, again, use your imagination, stretch yourself. Your parents find out about this issue. They come to you and what do they say? What were you thinking? Were you thinking? Was anything going through your mind other than sailboat fuel? I mean, was that all that was up there at that point? Okay, just t that's a joke. It takes you a few minutes. Sailboat fuel, wind, okay. What were you thinking? 
Was, was anything happening up there? Because somehow you, you, you just thought to yourself. I, I remember being at Carowinds, standing behind this guy who had bought like the 128 ounce drink. You know, it's like you get the six ounce drink for a dollar fifty, and then you get the super large and it's 128 ounces. So you just say, well, for another 50 cents, I get the big one. So he's got a big bucket in front of him. And we're standing in line to go on a ride that spins around. And then the floor drops out, you know, and you're stuck against the wall. It's one of those cool rides. So I'm standing right behind this guy. He just invested in the drink. And he can't take the drink on the ride. So he's using this little straw going... And I'm thinking, what is he thinking? Does he not know the ride he's about to encounter? And so we get on the same ride, and I get on the opposite side of this guy. And all I'll just say is, is a very short ride. Because he just didn't make it all the way through the ride. And many of the people, when the ride was immediately shut down due to an accident that he had, came up to him and said, Dude, what were you thinking? I mean, you knew what was happening here, but what were you thinking? And see, the problem is, is when you think, you think, I'm right. Most of the time, when you draw a conclusion in your mind, the reason you draw a conclusion is because you think you're right. If you have a spouse, is that not part of the problem with your communication? Honey, let me tell you what I think. Well, that's a bad way to start a communication process. This is not a marriage sermon. But the reason I'm saying that is because I'm right, and I'm just about ready to download this right information on you. You're so lucky you are married to me. (laughs) But we just naturally conclude, okay, I'm thinking, I'm a pretty smart person, and whatever I'm concluding in my brain must be right. And I think that's this man's problem. He, he's thinking to himself. And he draws a conclusion and he thinks, well, that, that sounds right. Proverbs 14. There is a way that seems right to a man. But in the end, it leads to death. That's what happened with this man. It seems so right. Everything in my culture, everything in my history, my parents, everybody was saying, it's the right thing, man. Build a bigger barn, eat, drink, and be merry. Yes, that seems like a right thing. And it led to death. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Proverbs 15, 22. Plans fail for a lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. You see, he he was thinking to himself. He was drawing some conclusions. And it never occurred to him that he might be totally missing. There are a lot of other biblical examples, but you know, the one with Peter... Such a good example of what not to do. Poor Peter. But he says 
to Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. Right. You got that right, Peter. And then he turns to his disciples and say, okay, now I'm going to go to the cross. And Peter says, hey, <laughs> you know, I've been thinking about that, Jesus, and we don't want to go that way. And Jesus turns and looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. For you do not have in your mind the things of God, but the things of men. See, Peter, in your mind, you're thinking, you've got it right. But you don't have my thinking. You don't have God's mindset. You're living your life on this world scale. You're going to be successful because you're in a position of power. And this is my position of power. And Peter is thinking to himself, he's literally, he's got his own desires. His, own, his affections are set on himself, just like the farmer. And so, in conclusion, I ask myself the, man, the same question the man asked himself. Well, what shall I do? I do have an abundance. I do have too much. And he does start with the right question. Well, well what should I do? And he draws a different conclusion than what Jesus draws. And here are three things, I think, that could help you not be a fool. First, if you have difficulty uh, letting go of your money. Remember, the, I told you a few weeks ago the, the story of uh, the Lord of the Rings. Gollum, he has this ring, and what does he call it? It's precious. It's creepy the way they do it. He just pets it. If you put a couple of Ben Franklin's in your hand, it's precious. You put a dollar, I can get rid of a dollar. You put a hundred, uh, it's precious. And if you have a hard time letting go of that hundred, or thousand, or if you make a hundred thousand, ten thousand, you can't do it because the pastor said it. wouldn't want you to do it because the pastor said it. You really have to go to the cross. All real giving comes out of understanding what you've been given. When we sang, how great is our God. When you stand in front of the greatness of God, if you can stand in that place, then your hand and your heart can, can open up. And it's not because Paul Phillips or Christ Community Church needs the money. We don't, we don't need the money. God doesn't need the money. You, you need to let go. And if you have difficulty let, letting go, if you're going to be before God with a clenched fist, you're going to be called a fool. And the way to begin to start letting that go is by first going to the cross and really understanding your own sin, and how much God loves you. The second thing is you have to fix your eyes on the right things. This is a critical, critical discipline. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. 
You see, if, you, if you're fixing your eyes on what is seen, if I'm constantly fixing my eyes on the cars around me, if I'm constantly fixing my eyes on the clothes around me, if I'm constantly fixing my eyes on the houses around me, if I'm constantly fixing my eyes on jewelry, if I'm constantly fixing my eyes on a title or a position, whatever you're fixing your eyes on, that's what you're going to want. You've seen this uh, is it HGTV show, I Want That. Isn't that the name of the show? If you fix your eyes on that, guess what you're going to want? That! I want that! That's awesome! It's better than what I have! You should see my bathroom. Boy, don't go in there. I want that one. But that's, you see, that's our whole culture. I want that. And we fix our eyes on it, and then we begin to think, and I deserve that. God owes me that. A lot of other people have that. I don't have that. I should have that. And we tell ourselves, and it's in our mind. We just tell ourselves again and again, and we fixed our eyes on it. It's precious. I can't let go of it. I gotta have this title. I gotta people I gotta let make sure people pay attention to me. See my cool car. Watch me put on my cool sunglasses. Notice my degree. Notice. And we just want one thing after another. And we just pet our way through life. And Jesus is going, fool, we are a fool. One day it's going to be all taken away. It's going to be given to somebody else. So we've got to fix our eyes on the, the right things. You've got to have the... Word of God in your mind. You've got to understand when you get to that point, you say, I'm not living on that scale. What did Luke 12, 15 say? And you've got to have that verse in your mind. Fight against that because you're fixing your eyes on something else. And finally, you can't just be left to your own thinking. Especially in finances. And this is what's so difficult is finances seem to be such a private thing. I mean, you don't say what you make and you don't say what your investments are and your parents don't say much about it to you and you think, well, maybe they just don't have any so they never talk about it. I mean, you know, it's all kind of weird. And you can't really sit down and talk with somebody and so you, kind of, you feel like you're kind of stuck. I don't know who to process this with. And so you end up sort of processing it by yourself. And Jesus is saying, that's foolish. So foolish. You've got to have somebody. It doesn't have to be everybody, but you have to have somebody come in and you just open up your life financially. It's a scary step. They say, hey, this is what I got. You've you got to look at it for me because if I look at it, I'll, I'll look at it from my way. I have a guy who's a Christian and does my taxes. And at the end of our little session, I say, okay, that's what I make, that's what I'm worth. Am I giving enough away? You tell me. Am I just raising my standard of, of living or am I also raising my standard of giving? I've got to have somebody else look in. Because if I'm just looking in, I'm going to build bigger barns for myself. I love myself. I love to eat, drink, and be merry. That sounds like a great thing in my mind. But Jesus is saying, it's foolish. 
And the only way I can avoid that foolishness is have somebody else look into my life. Now, you may be saying to yourself, a a great parable, oh, good sermon for this guy over here because he has too much. (laughs) Not me. I don't have too much. If you go to any other place on the planet, you're this person. Don't don't go to Haiti. This is us. This is you. This is you if you're 15. Yeah, you at 15 have more stuff at 12 than most people on the planet will ever have. Most people on the planet will never drive a car. So Jesus comes into this man who's sitting in a sermon about eternal things and his mind just wanders off saying, I'm not sure about my 401k. I can't keep my mind on it. Jesus, can you help me out my 401k? Jesus calls the man, you're a fool. You're worried about things that aren't going to last, and you're not worried about eternity. Lord, help us. But we have all been foolish. We have all thought to ourselves and concluded, this must be right. It sure feels right. We all want that. Whatever that is in our minds. You you have to come in and you have to arrest our hearts with the gospel. You you have to to help us see there's a, a totally different standard by the way we measure success. I pray that you would allow each person here to have the courage to invite someone else in who could say, hey, how about raising your standard of giving this year instead of living? Lord, one day soon, we're going to stand before you. And oh, how this stuff's not going to matter. The stuff of this world. So help us to see, to savor, and to follow after Jesus who will stand by our side. In His name we pray. Amen.